Please rise for the reading of God's Word from Acts chapter 15. Uh, We're going to read uh, from verse 22, and then, of course, we'll work our way through the rest of the passage. Uh, So hear now God's Word. Then it pleased the apostles and the elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. And thus far, the reading of God's Word and all God's people said. Amen. You may be seated. Establishing and strengthening churches was the primary work of the apostles, the pastors, and the elders. It still is. Paul tells us in Ephesians 4, and he himself, that is Jesus himself, uh, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some pastors, uh, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry or the work of service. That's the job. That's the task of the leadership of the church. And this will include doctrinal and theological instruction, Bible knowledge, exhortation, correction, and sometimes admonishment. Because according to Paul's writing in Ephesians 4, the goal is for every part, that is you and me, to do its part, to do your part, to serve the body of Christ. This is not a spectator sport. This is this. Everybody participates. Everybody is engaged. Everybody is involved in serving in Christ's kingdom. Now, once the Jerusalem Council had met, deliberated, and reached its conclusions, and they were ready to deliver the results of that to the various churches, that they started with the church in Antioch. This was way more than a theological society meeting that published the results of their studies. Rather, this was critical to the life and the peace of the church. It will also be a rebuke to the overly overly scrupulous who insist that everything be done precisely their way because they think of themselves more highly than they ought. Now, sometimes we want to hear fiery sermons on hot-button cultural issues of our day. I I like those too. But I want to tell you that grasping the international scope of the gospel uh, and implementing that in our churches, that is, strengthening our churches, is the single most important thing we can do to counter the cultural death that surrounds us. It's not The solution is not found in us just telling everybody what's wrong with what they're doing, but what's most critical is what we're doing. Whether we're living the gospel, whether we're showing the world a better way, a more lovely way, a way that adorns the gospel of Jesus Christ, because that is the only answer there is. And so when we take the gospel seriously... The world will change. It always has. Now, you recall that the Jerusalem Council met 
when the church at Antioch sent a delegation, that specifically they sent Paul and Barnabas to address the question of whether Gentile believers must be circumcised, that is, that, that must they become Jews uh, in order to be saved. Some men from the church of Jerusalem had come to Antioch, and they got everybody stirred up over this issue. The church in Jerusalem was made up primarily of Jewish Christians, Jewish believers, and the church in Antioch was made up primarily of Gentile believers. Thus, there was a built-in, deep cultural divide that went back for many, many years. These kinds of divides within the church can also be due to racial, ethnic, national, liturgical, theological, and denominational differences. In any of these kinds of situations, it's common for one group to assume that they are in possession of the truth and to look down upon all of those who disagree with them and don't do it their way. I think there's a natural Gnosticism that is latent in many people, maybe in all of us. We like having some kind of special inside knowledge because it, it's a means of puffing ourselves up. The Bible says, knowledge puffeth up, but love edifies. And when we're puffed up, then we want to lord it over other people. We want to let them know that we know more than they know. That we're a little bit more spiritual than they are. And we can do that in a thousand different ways. Mature Christian leaders understand that as we teach and defend doctrinal truth, and we must, that we may not lose sight of the Apostle Paul's admonition to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with all of those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Those have to be held in balance. We're not going to sacrifice the truth for peace, but we're not going to sacrifice peace either. We're going to have peace in the truth. And that's a, sometimes a challenge and a difficult balance. We have struggles. There's, there are important things to fight for, to defend. So it's not peace at all costs, but it is peace within the context of the revealed Word of God. And so in our text today, we will see these things being implemented by church leaders. In verse 22, we'll see that in addition to Paul and Barnabas, who would be returning to Antioch, the council is going to select a couple of other men, Judas and Silas, who are described as leading men among the brethren. Moreover, they, they send a formal letter to the church at Antioch. So in other words, there was a letter, and then they sent trusted people to explain the letter and to answer questions. There was a care and a concern for this congregation. And so let's look at verse 23 and following. This is the actual letter that was sent by the council from Jerusalem to Antioch. They wrote this letter to them, the apostles, the elders, and the brethren, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some of you went out from, from some who went out from us have troubled you with words unsettling your souls, saying, "You must be circumcised and keep the law." 
to whom we gave no such commandment. It seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these things, you will do well. Farewell. So this letter opens very respectfully, respectful of the Gentile believers, placing them on an equal footing with the church in Jerusalem. And there are three important points are made in this letter. First, the leaders disassociate themselves from the party of the circumcision and by, implement, and by implication the requirements of circumcision. So the men who had originally come from the Jerusalem church who had troubled those in Antioch, in the Antioch church, did so on their own, though they apparently led people to believe they had been authorized to be there and were speaking on behalf of the church in Jerusalem, or some, perhaps some of the apostles, but they were doing it on their own without the authorization of the apostles and elders. Those men did not represent them. In fact, they misrepresented them. As a member of this church, you should be careful to distinguish between your private views as opposed to those of the formal positions of the church. And that's just a good practice and a good wisdom. Don't, you know, because when we leave here, there is an assumption. If people know you're a member of this church, just like when people were members of the Jerusalem church and they go somewhere and they start to talk, there can be an assumption, well, you must be representing the position of the church. That can happen at work or school or in your neighborhood or with your families. So it, it's a good idea to be sure and, and say, now these are my own views versus uh, uh, me just speaking and having people assume that it's everyone. So this decision, we're told, was the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, I think the way the Holy Spirit worked is the way he works now, which is basically he moved them to agree. There were four things they did require that they that these Gentile Christians abstain from, and that was things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, which is kind of a group there, and then from sexual immorality. And as I mentioned last week, this seems to be primarily a requirement that Gentile believers make a clean break from any pagan ceremonies and practices that they had grown up with. When we're called to follow Christ, we're called to leave the old life behind, to lay that down and to follow Him. And so some of those habits, no doubt, and practices were still going on, and this was concerning. Of course, many of the Jews had been taught from Moses things contrary to that, and, and that was right. And so uh, it was important uh, that they, they make it clear um, that uh, these are the, the things that, have to be set aside. Um, so, I'm sorry, I think I skipped here. Second, they made it clear that they had authorized Judas and Silas to come in. The other guys that had come were not authorized, but Judas and Silas were authorized to come in in conjunction with Paul and Barnabas to speak on their behalf 
And the third thing was that their unanimous decision not to burden the Gentile believers with circumcision or other ceremonial laws except for these four things. And so uh, the same thing, these four things are addressed by Paul in other places. Paul will write in 1 Corinthians 10, 23 through 24, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, not all things edify. Let no one seek his own, but each one his uh, each one the other's well-being. And so there is a consideration here. You've got this conflict between the traditions of the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians, and now we're trying to, to not compromise the truth, but also find ways that we can give a little for each other's sake. Um, this is, a, again, uh, Paul will expand on this more in Romans 14. These requirements for the Gentile believers then also showed respect for the Jewish believers who'd grown up under the teaching of Moses on these same matters, some of which had been hindering their table fellowship. Um, I, uh, you, you know, you can imagine people from different cultures even just bringing different kinds of foods to eat. And, and in some cultures, you're like, we would never, ever eat chitlins, you know, because that, that's gross. Um, other people say, uh, what do we call those delicacies if you're in certain other places? So, uh, again, they're having this kind of division within the church over the foods that are being eaten for various reasons, and we need to be mindful of that with each other. Um, the rec- so, Luke, having recorded the council's letter, now reports how the letter was received in the Gentile churches, first in Antioch, then in Syria and Cilicia, and finally Galatia. So we're going to work through this text and see how, so got that idea, the letter has come back to Antioch, it's been reported, and now it's going to go to some of the other churches who are having uh, concerns over these same issues. So in verse 30, so when they were sent off, they came to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitude, that is the church together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. Now Judas and Silas themselves, being prophets, also exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. And after they had stayed there for a time, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. However, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And so this dispute, this controversy has now been brought to some resolution. They're rejoicing over that, and some clarity has been made. The first stop, then, was at the church at Antioch, since they had initiated the concerns that were sent to Jerusalem. And this was presented to the whole church to facilitate clear communication. Paul and Barnabas had done similar things in chapter 14. You remember when they had returned back from their first missionary journey, they gathered the church together and gave a report on, on what God had done. And now they received the good news that they did not need to be circumcised and become Jews. And I can only imagine that this was a relief for more than one reason, if you know what I mean. Um, what was central was that the relationship between these two factions was critical to the unity of God's plan of redemption. God saves all kinds of people, people who look different, people who have different backgrounds, different experiences, different traditions. 
In Ephesians 2, Paul addresses this, verses 14 and 15. For he himself, that is Jesus, is our peace. Remember, what's the problem with the world? It's a lack of peace. We're at war with each other. All kind of conflicts. That's, that's the turmoil of the world. But God says all these different people, the central thing is Jesus. He is what brings the peace. He is the center. He's the truth. That's, that's a great starting place, right? We, have, we need to change the way we think about all kinds of things. We need to conform our thinking to God's thinking. So he is the truth, and the truth will set you free. So it's in the truth, it is in Jesus, that we find peace no matter where we come from. But that also implies that we have to make changes. It also implies that we have to be patient with others while that takes place. He is our peace, who has made both one, Jew and Gentile, and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of the commandments contained in the ordinance. He's talking about the Old Testament ceremonial laws, which draw these, drew this sharp distinction, so as to create in himself, that is, in Jesus, one new man from the two, thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them, bring them together, both to God, in one body, through the cross. That's the unifying place. The way they became one people is to be taught the word of God, and thus Judas and Silas, along with Paul and Barnabas, uh, Judas and Silas themselves being prophets, also exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. They had a lot of Bible studies. A lot of gatherings. They had a lot to learn. These were new Christians. And Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch teaching and preaching the word with many others also. I can't imagine. It's a large group, big church. So there's lots of study groups going on. Classes on different things. And then we have kind of a, an unusual thing happen here in this text, starting in verse 36. So let's read that. Then... After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Now, Barnabas was determined to take with them John, called Mark, but Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So a little time lapses. This is probably the spring of AD 49. And Paul recommends to Barnabas that they revisit the churches that they had helped establish on their first missionary journey. Moreover, you should remember that Paul had already written to the Galatian churches. So our book of Galatians was that letter. Moreover, he wants to deliver the findings of the Jerusalem council to these churches. These are mostly Gentile churches. Paul's care for the churches ran deep, and he will later describe his ministry in Thessalonica as that of a nursing mother cherishing her own children. So he wants to go check on his children. 
By the way, this is a good example, and there are several others in the New Testament, of how we, as a local church, should care for the broader church. And not just for our local church. We serve the body of Christ wherever it is. We're not always measuring things about whether a dollar spent or time spent here, how it's going to benefit us. The goal is to serve the kingdom of God wherever it is. And we see that here. It's interesting that the Holy Spirit included in script, includes in Scripture, though, this dispute between Paul and Barnabas over Mark. That's done on purpose, right? I think this humanizes the situation in such a way that we can all relate. We, too, have disagreements. Sometimes we have sharp disagreements. The early church, then, was like our church. And our church was like the early church. And we'll see that God was at work even in this disagreement. You remember that Mark was uh, Barnabas' cousin, and I was thinking about Barnabas, too. He's known as the encourager, uh, a guy who probably was more in, uh, inclined to, to let things go and just move along and let's get along. And here's his cousin. He wants to help him out. He loves him. He's caring for him. And Paul says, nope, he can't go on this trip. Why? Well, we can't trust him. Last time, when we needed him, right in the middle of the trip, he bailed. He headed back home. We need somebody we can count on. And I can hear Barnabas arguing, I think he's learned from his mistakes. I think he's grown. I don't think he'll do that again. Uh, He's sorry. Paul says, no. And so, on that first journey, Mark left Paul and Barnabas and returned. And, um, And again, it leaves Paul rather dubious about including him on another trip. In verse 38, but Paul insisted that they should not take him with them, the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and not gone with them on the work. So Paul didn't want to risk another situation like that, but Barnabas wanted to give him another chance. And so we should note a few things about this disagreement. Again, first, it was a very sharp contention, verse 39. Second, the dispute could not be resolved, so they each went in a different direction. Third, this, was, this led to the two men... Paul and Barnabas and their companions going separate ways, two missions, and it also led to the inclusion of Silas, who would then travel with Paul. Remember, Silas had come from the Jerusalem church and had stayed. And I think many of our denominational divides actually accomplish the same thing. Sometimes people say, shouldn't we all just be in one big, happy kumbaya together. And apparently God doesn't think so. Uh, even even here, the, the Antioch church and the Jerusalem church have some very dis- distinct things about them. They're both churches in Jesus Christ. They're both brothers and sisters, and they're united in many ways, but also doing different things, reaching different people. In our own city, we have faithful churches all over the place. We have disagreements. They disagree with us. We disagree with them. And I'm not saying that all of those disagreements are not important. We should continue to talk and pray and debate and do those things. But we have to always come back and remember, these are our brothers and sisters in Christ. They do some things way better than we do them. I hope we do a few things better. But we all have something to learn from each other. 
And it all calls for the grace of God. And so it's hard to call what happened here good, but God still uses it to advance his kingdom. To jump ahead in this story, though, Mark and Paul will ultimately be reconciled. The next time Mark is mentioned in Scripture, Paul is writing to Colossae and and uh, to Philemon from Rome, which is about ten years after this event. Colossians 4, 10-11, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision. They have proved to be a comfort to me, Paul writes. In Paul's last letter, he tells Timothy, Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. In 1 Peter 5.13, Peter refers to Mark as my son, lending support to the tradition that Mark wrote his gospel based upon what he had learned from the Apostle Peter. So here's a lesson we can learn from this episode with Paul and Mark. We can recover from mistakes, bad decisions. John Mark wasn't ruined because of his immature decision on that first journey. In the end, God chose him to write one of the Gospels. Moreover, even when there is human strife and even division in the church, God can override that to advance his kingdom. And instead of one mission team, now there were two. And that brings us to chapter 16, and we want to look at the first five verses of that this morning. It's a continuation, of course, of this story. Then he uh, came to Derby. so this is Paul and Silas, uh, came to Derby and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed that his father was, a Greek, was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium, Paul wanted to have him go on with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. In God's good providence, something remarkable took place in Lystra. We have no idea what God is going to do and what he's going to do and how he is going to surprise us down the road. You don't know who you're going to meet tomorrow, next week, next year. Young people, I especially point that out to you. Many of you, some of you, haven't met your future spouse yet, but they're out there. God's getting ready, and in his time and his providence, he'll bring you together. You might not have even met your best friend yet. Certainly more friends, more people, more influences, more opportunities. All of those are ahead. And so here, um, it was here that Paul met Timothy along with his mother Eunice, who was a Jewess, but had become a believer in Christ. And perhaps she had been converted during Paul's, Paul's visit there, which was about five years before this. 
Timothy's father was a Greek, and the tense of the verb in the verse indicates that perhaps his father may have been dead at that point. So young Timothy had an excellent reputation, we're told in this text, among the Christians in Lystra and Iconium. The Greek word that is used here is an interesting word, maturio, which is, of course, where we get our word mature. Um, No doubt this is why Paul wanted to recruit this young man, uh, perhaps to fulfill a similar role that Mark had held at the first on the first missionary journey, but he recognized something in this young man that was outstanding. I want to think about that a bit. A bit. In 1 Corinthians 4.17, Paul commends Timothy to the churches and describes him as my beloved and faithful son in the Lord. This is some years after they've met. Writing many years later, Paul refers to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.2 as a true son in the faith. And a few years after that, in Paul's last letter... And that last letter went to Timothy, who was in Ephesus. He called Timothy his beloved son. In fact, Timothy appears in nine of Paul's letters and will be his companion, really, for the rest of his life. Now, one thing we know about Timothy is that his grandmother, Lois, and his mother, Eunice, had, from the time he was a very young child, perhaps even the word could be, an infant, taught him the Holy Scriptures, which were able to make him wise unto salvation. I want you to think about how important this is. Here are these two faithful women. We don't know at what point they're converted to Christ, but they're faithful Jews, so they're reading the Old Testament. They're teaching this little baby the Word of God. And now God is going to take all those labors of that grandmother and mother who could have had no idea what God was going to do with Timothy and going to take all the, 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 the labors and the, the teaching and the instruction and the love and the prayers in that little boy and going to use him in incredible ways to help change the world. Parents and grandparents, your labors are not in vain. As I said, Timothy is half Greek and half Jewish, but he had never been circumcised. Perhaps his father wouldn't allow it. But on the face of it, there appears to be some contradiction between Paul's hot opposition to the requiring of circumcision of the Gentile Christians, which led to the Jerusalem Council, and now he's circumcising Timothy, something that he was experienced at as a rabbi. But I want to point out that this is not a contradiction. Some people have tried to argue Paul was just being contradictory here. But the principle had been established that circumcision was not necessary for salvation. Nevertheless, circumcision was allowed for Christian Jews, and this would be advantageous in making Timothy more acceptable to the Jews and the text tells us they knew the Jews knew that his father was a Greek. So Paul would vehemently oppose, for example, the circumcision of the Gentile Titus when other people were insisting on it. He said, no way. In fact, he wrote in Galatians 2.5, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. 
we're not budging on the principle. In fact, Paul, Silas, and Timothy will now um, travel to the cities delivering to them the very decrees that were issued by the apostles and elders at the Jerusalem Council uh, so that the, again, so that the churches were strengthened in the faith. In other words, there was a maturity taking place with a greater understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ as the only sufficient Savior. And so someone asked me about the issue of if, if uh, this is kind of an, a side note, Larry, this is for you. I think you wrote and asked me about this. Um, at this time, Chris, you know, so if, why weren't they upset, say, for example, about the Sabbath? We, we see the concern about circumcision and so forth. But at this time, Christians were still meeting on the Sabbath and on Sundays. They did both. So they were going into the temple uh, and worshiping. In other words, at this point, uh, the, the church is not really separated completely. It's thought of as kind of a sect of Judaism at this point. As more and more Gentiles are coming in, and really with the Council of Jerusalem, I think we begin to see this clear distinction taking place. And so uh, they celebrated Sunday as Resurrection Day. They'd often met very early in the morning. Remember, they still had to work too. So they weren't doing like us, taking having a whole day off to go meet on a Sunday and spend the day in worship and rest. And so that was mostly on Saturday, on the Sabbath, and they would meet early on Sunday morning to celebrate the resurrection. And so uh, in time, Sundays would supplant Sabbath worship, but that was going to be still several years away. So the question was, why don't we see that controversy in the New Testament? Uh, Because that controversy really hadn't arisen yet. So what are some of the lessons that we can learn from the Jerusalem Council? First, there was a danger of the church breaking up into theological factions and destroying the unity of the church. That danger is still among us, and it's evidenced by many church splits, especially among evangelicals. Presbyterians have been known as split pea soup. Um, Other groups have been just as bad. Many of you have heard the joke, but I'll take the opportunity to tell it. I don't tell many jokes from the pulpit about the guy that was stranded on the desert island. They found him after 10 years, and as he was packing his stuff up to leave, he was showing them, this is my house, this is my storage room that I built, this is my church. And there was another building further away, and somebody said, well, what is that one? He said, that's the church I used to go to. Um, um Pride and arrogance are not only ugly, they're also usually destructive. And there's plenty of that going around. Humility and grace promote unity of the church, a willingness to listen, to learn. James, Peter, and Paul all came together, and the Holy Spirit led them to the truth and to unity. Second lesson, while the gospel had to be protected from corruption, remember Paul says later, even if we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel. And by the way, when he said that, he was referring to this very controversy. If he preached another gospel to you other than what we've preached to you, let him be accursed. Let him go to hell. Strong language. But the other objective 
was to preserve the peace and the unity of the church. We don't get to sacrifice that in the process. I think it's somewhat like law and grace. They work together. They're not opposites. They each have a place. We must guard the gospel and we must pursue peace with one another. Brothers and sisters, we have a job to do. We have a calling. We have a mission. The world lays in darkness and is under the sentence of death. We have been given the light of the world. Remember, the devil wants to destroy that. It's true at your house. It's true in this church. It's true in every church. If I'm the devil and I can get, if I can break your communion, if I can stir up strife, if I can get you to not talk to one another, avoid one another, uh, just live within yourself, then the devil wins and the kingdom of God is damaged. Don't let him win. That's why we're going to come to the table here in a moment to remind ourselves of how central communion is. A common union in the truth. Professor J. Gresham Machen articulated the situation of the world this way. The world is restless today. There are many voices, but there is no peace. Men are feverishly saying to, a, uh, saying to a God manufactured to serve the social needs of man, Deliver me, for thou art my God. They are trying to produce decency without principle. They are trying to keep back the raging sea of passion with the flimsy mud embankment of self-interest. They are trying to do so without the stern, solid masonry of the will of God. When will the vain effort cease? Shall we continue in our wanderings? Shall we continue to stagger like drunken men? Shall we still fashion a divinity that shall serve our utilitarian ends? Shall we amuse ourselves with idols? Or shall we return to God? A strong church. That's what the apostles went out, the missionaries went out to do, was to strengthen the churches. Why? Because that's how the world gets changed. A strong church, strong in truth, strong in love, is exactly what this crumbling world needs. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we are grateful that you inspired and preserved this portion of your word for your people so that we might see how Jesus continues to work through the church to reach the world with the gospel. Ordinary men and women from every tribe and tongue, Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, we all need our sins forgiven and we all need Christ as our Savior. Help us to be actively engaged in this eternal work. Indeed, Uh, We pray that this church would be strengthened for greater and greater things ahead. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You remember the story of uh, Jephthah and the uh, Gileadites who defeated the Ephraimites in battle in Judges chapter 12. And when the surviving uh, Ephraimites attempted to get away, they were kind of mixing in with all the refugees. Imagine thousands and thousands of people, they were given a test. 
And I'll read that passage from Judges 12, verse 5 and 6. These are long verses. Now Jephthah gathered together all the men of Gilead and fought against Ephraim, and the men of Gilead defeated Ephraim because they had said, You Gileadites are fugitives of Ephraim among the Ephraimites and among the Manassites. The Gileadites seized the fords of the Jordan before the Ephraimites arrived. And when any Ephraimite who escaped said, Let me cross over, the men of Gilead would say to him, Are you an Ephraimite? And if he said no, then they would say to him, Then say, Shibboleth. And he would say, Shibboleth, Sibboleth, uh, for he could not pronounce it right. Then they would take him and kill him at the fords of the Jordan. There fell at that time 42,000 Ephraimites. The Ephraimites couldn't pronounce the word which gave them away. This enabled the Gileadites to separate them out from the crowd. And the word Shibboleth then became, became the means of dividing and identifying certain people. Now, this was clever in battle, but it has also been used by many for other reasons. The party of the circumcision was attempting something similar by requiring circumcision for the Gentile Christians. They saw the Gentiles as inferior to themselves. It wasn't communion they were after, but rather submission. The church, and especially the Reformed world, is full of shibboleths, which is any custom or tradition, usually a choice of phrasing or even a single word that distinguishes one group of people from another. You didn't say that just right. You're you're suspect. We're not going to have anything to do with you. You don't understand this the way we understand this. Titus 3, 9 through 10, but avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and striving about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. We should be looking for reasons to be united with other Christians, not seeking to separate, much less elevate ourselves above others. And so as we come to the Lord's table, in the truth that Jesus is the Christ, the one and only Savior of the world, the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes to the Father but by Him. We come to the table with loving communion as our objective. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. We bid you farewell. Amen.